The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is the episode for the 6th of February, 2014, in which we talk about troubleshooting. So, Adam, do you ever feel like your computer is conspiring against you? I'm pretty much positive it is, uh, pretty much <laughs> all the time. Okay. Luckily, I'm too stubborn to let it win. Uh, right. But it, it can uh, take up an afternoon here and there. Yeah, it, it's always the small change you make. You think, oh, I'll just correct this or I'll just install this piece of software. And all, all of a sudden, things start breaking. And uh, like you said, you can spend the better part of an afternoon troubleshooting the problem. Or uh, Tuesday mornings after Microsoft pushes updates. Oh, you've had that one. <laughs> I I hear a voice laughing in the background. You've had that problem too, Brian? Yes. I, I just recently uh, upgraded my PC here, and it, my favorite was when the second time I booted, I had 135 updates. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's certainly a problem we run into a lot in engineering is that uh, we have a beautiful design. We, uh, we construct it. We build it. Uh, we put it on the floor or on the bench, and all of a sudden it doesn't work quite the way intended, and we have to somehow figure out what the problem is. Uh, and so uh, troubleshooting is, a, uh, is an ongoing skill that uh, engineers truly need. So since it's such an important skill, we decided that we had asked Bob Schmidt to come join us this evening and uh, talk to us a little about troubleshooting since he's written a book on that subject. And uh, before we introduce Bob, let me first ask our listeners, if they haven't done so so far, to please take the listener survey that we have up on our website. Uh, that's at theengineeringcommons.com. That survey will remain up through February the 8th of 2014. And uh, we'd love to know more about our listening audience and what their likes and dislikes are. So if you wouldn't mind, please go take that uh, survey and uh, let us know a little bit more about you. So as I mentioned, our guest the uh, this evening is Bob Schmidt, who's an electrical engineer with 40 plus years of experience dealing with software, hardware, and system design. And at various times during his career, he's been engineer, manager, and entrepreneur. Uh, he holds more than a dozen patents and is the author of a recently published book about troubleshooting titled The Dog Barks When the Phone Rings, An Engineer's Guide to Solving Problems. Bob, welcome to the Engineering Commons. Well, thank you for inviting me to join your group tonight. This is really an exciting thing you're doing here. I, I was personally starting to mourn the loss of so many great industry teachers, you know, Bob Pease, Jim Williams, George Roski, Frank Burge, and now I'm seeing a whole new generation stepping in. And you're using new tools to share information, things like YouTube, podcasting, and blogs um, that, that in very real way are very new to me. And, and of course, I'm, I'm really excited to join your podcast. After all, many friends have told me that I have a face that's perfect for radio. <laughs> and, 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 that's why we're a podcast and not a Google Hangout. <laughs> yeah. And, and so as we go along, I hope people will remember it takes a lot of time and preparation to be this boring. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thanks so much for joining us. And, uh, so what, what got you interested in engineering, Bob? 
Well, I, I got into engineering pretty young. In middle school, I veered close to chemical engineering, but mostly I was making fireworks. And I had a few, <laughs> I had a few too many close calls, and I found that electronics seemed a little bit safer. Uh, I, I passed the FCC first-class radio telephone exam when I was 18 by studying books from the library. And then that gave me a license to work on broadcast transmitters like TV and radio stations. Uh, I worked my way through college in a bunch of different jobs, mostly for little TV stations, you know, the kind that make uh, WKRP in Cincinnati seem like a documentary. Right. <laughs> Public access stuff? Uh, no. Uh, you know, over the air, some uh, some actually major networks, but they were very tiny stations. Uh, my career's always been somewhere in the general vicinity of broadcasting or television or something like that. I, I'd spent a few semesters in college in the journalism sequence, but then I switched my major back to electrical engineering when I realized I was taking more double E classes than anything else. Hmm. Uh, I, I still do some volunteer photojournalism when I get the chance, often for a local newspaper called the Broad Ripple Gazette. And uh, I, I started in electronics pretty young. It was a real point of pride for me that occasionally people would say, hey, you're pretty young to have done that already. But now I go to my doctor and he says, hey, you're pretty young to have this problem already. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds a little bit like you, Brian. Didn't you have an interest in journalism as well? Yeah, I farted around in journalism for about two years before I navigated into the technicals area. Yeah. Yes, I probably would still be there had I not had a prof that told me I was clearly bored and I should go find a new major. <laughs> Can't say I was ever bitten by the journalism bug, but I don't mind writing. That's good. That's good. Yeah. So, so Bob, did you consider, you said you considered uh, chemical engineering for a while, but that once, once you got started on electrical engineering, that was kind of it for you? Right. I I just, you know, the bug bit me and wouldn't let go. And I hate to admit this, but I think I do this. I, I would do electrical engineering even if they almost didn't pay me. Ooh, don't tell them that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Don't don't tell anyone I said that. <laughs> no, that's fine. No one, no one actually listens to this podcast. It's just the, the four of us. It, okay. And, and are you still active in amateur radio at all? Uh, I never did amateur radio. Oh, okay. I had many friends who were uh, hams, but I, I did not do that. Okay, so you got your license for uh, commercial broadcasting. Yes. Okay. Now, what was it about the curriculum in the EE program that you really enjoyed? Oh, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, of course, I started mostly in kind of what I would call traditional electrical engineering, but pretty quickly veered off into the computer side and processors and how processors worked and that, that whole innards of computers just grabbed hold of me and I, I didn't want to let go because what I realized somewhere in there was I could take the computer and make it do things that I was have previously I had to build all the hardware. But with mm -hmm. the computer you could just build some software. And nowadays it's even better because other people build the software and I don't have to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were an undergrad, what was the platform of choice? Oh, you're dating me. This is I know, terrible. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Raspberry my, first, <laughs> my first computer, I built a Motorola 6800. Yeah. Not, not 68,000, 6800. That's awesome. Wow. <laughs> See, you say you're dating yourself, but I couldn't even put a date on that. And I had a magnificent uh, 512 bytes of memory in that machine. Wow. 
half a K. Yeah. I think we just burned through much more than that in this this podcast so far. <laughs> yes, <laughs> give or take. Our normal podcast releases are, I think, in the range of thirty to thirty-five megabytes. So, <laughs> quite a bit more than what Bob had available to him. Yes. Okay. So, you've written a book about troubleshooting. What in the world got you interested in this particular aspect of engineering? Well, um, I used to think that companies were paying me to design stuff. And, and then one day in the midst of some deep despair over a really difficult problem, I had this moment of clarity that the problems were really why they paid me. If I did not have problems to solve, they wouldn't need me. <laughs> well, a- amen. I'm currently slogging through the uh, problem-solving phase at work right now. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, designing something seems really easy as opposed to making it work well. Yes, of course, Bob, the dark side of what you've just suggested is that uh, could be a reason why all of the equipment that I send to warm climates is really buggy and needs a lot of field service. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you got to head out on a plane. Got to do what the job <laughs> job calls for. Exactly. You're, you're just that dedicated. So, uh, Bob, your, your uh, book, which we'll talk about in uh, just a minute, is uh, very conversational. In tone, it's not like a reference book where it's you know step one, step two. It's very conversational, but you talk in that about uh, uh, parables of problem solving, and I got the impression that 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 was what you felt were the the way that the lessons of problem solving were shared with one another. Yes, and it's it's not the only way that we share these ideas, but it's it's one way, and it's a nice painless way. Because when, when we share these stories, a lot of times we laugh and we tend to remember them. And, and I think it's just a much more fun way to pass along not just the, the specific lesson, but sometimes you're passing along the culture of the engineering group and you're, you're passing along the, the kind of the subtle methods. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's like a rite of passage when you've you know, solved some difficult problem or even some common problem that everybody else uh, in your office has solved. Yes, it, it goes a long way towards you know getting a getting an office climate together and you know kind of really feeling like an engineer. Well, you you, cer- you certainly know that you've made it in the group when you can sort of pitch into those stories and and uh, you know your contributions are accepted by the group. Yeah, yeah, you save your one upman story for uh, the big guns and when you really want to show off. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. But but it's also true that it's 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 more than just gratification about uh, sharing your story. I mean, when you are truly lost and panicked, you'd remember all those stories that somebody has told, you know, anything that's even tangentially related. I think uh, Dave had this issue with, you know, this particular microchip processor. Let me shotgun style exactly what he did without thinking. (laughs) Yes. You do all that fretting and then the stories you don't tell are when it turns out to be you never had the damn thing plugged in. Exactly. <laughs> just narrowing in on that solution space. Uh, I, I think I run into that at least once or twice a week. I'm like, no, this this was just working. What happened? I added one component, and then I'm like, oh, right. Yeah, I didn't hook up the power. And then <laughs> it's like a brief 15 seconds of crisis. Yes. So, Bob, the, the title of your book is The Dog Barks When the Phone Rings, An Engineer's Guide to Solving Problems. And that's kind of an unusual title for a troubleshooting book. How did you arrive at that title? Well, the the title comes from uh, the first chapter, which tells a story 
of a fellow who's working in the, um, you know, the telephone company. And he mm-hmm. gets this call, and and the the lady at the other end says, "I need you to come fix my phone." And he's he's kind of confused because he can hear her just fine, and she can hear him, and mm-hmm. she obviously obviously could dial, and yet. She says, no, you need to come fix the phone. And he says, well, what's the problem? And she says, my dog barks when the phone rings. And he says, well, <laughs> you know, we don't fix dogs, lady. <laughs> and, and this, this go, you know, the story's written a little bit more detailed, but it goes on and on. And finally, she says something about, well, you, you were just here and you put an extension in my back room. And this kind of makes him a little nervous because something's changed and, uh, and he knows what's changed, but he doesn't understand her complaint. Mm-hmm. So rather than send anybody else out, he says, all right, look, I'll, I'll come out, you know, during lunch and I'll, I'll look at this. And he gets out there and sure enough, he finds he, he arranges a test call and the, the, the phone starts ringing and this dog just goes nuts. It takes off, leaps into the air, <laughs> looks, looks like it's trying to fly away, you know, and and it's yelping and screaming and he's like, oh, wow. You know, and he slams the phone down. And, and he, he goes outside and he, he messes around for a little while at the back of the house. And he comes back in and he says, okay, I think I fixed it. And he arranges another test call. And yeah, the dog's fine. Nothing happens. And so he goes back to the office and he, he explains um, to the guys there what, what he found. And it was that they had put a new extension into this woman's uh, back bedroom. And, you know, to keep the wire neat, they stapled it. Well, she had aluminum siding. And the dog is on an aluminum cable run, (laughs) you know. And so, of course, what's happening is when when there's ringing voltage, this poor dog is getting electrocuted. (laughs) (laughs) And and he's yelping pretty good, and it's quite understandable. And uh, all he had to do was, you know, open the short and then put a little tape or something there to, to keep it from shorting again. But it was actually a, a very good lesson, and it was especially important because he had to listen to the customer. Her mm-hmm. complaint was 100% valid, and yet at the beginning, he wanted to dismiss it. And so there, there's a lot of problems in life that are this way and um, a lot of things where we tend to think, oh, that customer is an idiot. And no, <laughs> turns out they're not. And so that's that's why that story has just always stuck with me. And um, And so that became the title. Now, I, I should uh, explain something. We're about to release a second edition of the book, and the title is going to be shortened. It's just going to be called An Engineer's Guide to Solving Problems. And for everyone who loves the dog and the story, I know that's a disappointment. But part of the intended audience here is, um, is engineering students and young engineers, uh, new graduates, and the the feedback that I've had from uh, professors has been very negative about the existing title and the existing cover. They they felt it was lightweight, lighthearted, uh, and of course that was very intentional. You know, we we wanted to make it sort of fun, and and I appreciate that you said the book's conversational because that was very intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you you do need to be taken seriously by your own customer. And so in this case, we're, we're going to a, a, a t- little more tame cover and uh, the, the title is going to be much shorter. And will the story remain in the second edition? Oh yes. The story is there. In fact, <laughs> and and uh, I guess I should hasten to add 
anyone who has the first edition, I wouldn't bother to get the second edition. They're, they're very similar. There's maybe a handful of pages have been added. All that information is out on my blog and we can cover that later. But, um, mostly it's, it's kind of just a, um, a little bit of a spiff up, you know, to just kind of make it a little bit nicer, um, for let's say an academic environment. Right. But the content will, will be primarily the same. And did you get into this market because there was a, you felt there was a lack of books that covered this topic? Yes. And, um, I, I, I tell a little, very short story in the bibliography after I'd written the first draft, I discovered that there was a book because someone told me about it and they said, Oh, there's, there's this other book by a fellow named David Agins and, uh, it's called, um, debugging the nine indispensable rules for solving problems or I don't have that quite right. But, um, and I, so I bought a copy of Agins book and it's really excellent and it's very parallel to the thing I do where I tell uh, fairy tales. I, you know, all my stories start with once upon a time, right? His are war stories. And so, um, you know, he'll tell you a war story and, and he's doing the same kind of thing. He's telling stories to illustrate these points. Um, and his book is excellent and I highly recommend it. I really do. But you felt that you had a, uh, something to add to the conversation. Yes, I I think so. And, you know, our perspectives are a little different. Um, and, uh, you know, the the way he organizes his troubleshooting rules is different from the, the rules that I try to, you know, suggest. I'm not very religious about troubleshooting rules. I, I think that people just need to find a method that works for them and then stick with it. Right. And so in your book, you promote the uh, the five questions approach. Yes. And so uh, why, don't, why don't we just sort of outline them first and we can go through and talk about each of them in detail. Would that be all right? That'd be great. I got a quick question before we dive into the heart of your book. Uh, what made you want to focus on kind of a general troubleshooting approach instead of, you know, something specific to electrical engineering like Bob Pease's book? And what's the name of Bob Pease's book? Troubleshooting Analog Circuits. Okay, thanks. Yeah, which is a great book, by the way. Yes, I have a copy uh, of it at work. You know, when you sit down in front of the keyboard, something comes out of you that isn't necessarily what you thought was going to come out of you when you started. And all I can say is that's the book that came out of the ends of my fingers. And, <laughs> that's as good a reason as any. I, I don't I don't know how to explain that. Um, part of it was I didn't want to write something that would be um, – obsolete in five minutes. You know, mm -hmm. uh, if I wrote a book about the 6,800 or the 68,000 or, you know, whatever the flavor of the day is in processors, you know, the, let's see, it, it would be uh, ARM today, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that the technology has a very short shelf life. And I thought, no, I really want to do something that is more generic and has a broader appeal. They're never going to build anything better than the ARM 4. <laughs> <laughs> we, we pretty much peaked plateaued yeah 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 all right i think we got a book idea let's hammer this out hit the mute <laughs> on the microphones guys <laughs> and bob i noticed that uh the the two terms that came up in your book i saw troubleshooting sometime and i saw it called problem solving sometime do you make any distinction between those two terms i i really don't you know some people like 
very sophisticated language, and they they hate the idea of you talk about fixing something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to me, it's just the same. It, it's um, you know they they think fixing calls up the image of a plumber, whereas uh, fluid dynamics brings up an engineer. You know, eh, I, I'm okay either way. <laughs> See, I love fixing problems at work and, you know, putting on my, my thick southern accent, you know, there's your problem. You got your video <laughs> ring. <laughs> that, that takes half the fun out of it if I'm not allowed to do that. I don't want to be a dignified engineer. Yeah. Okay, well, let's uh, let's jump back to our uh, our five questions approach. The, uh, the five questions are roughly, what do you know? What are the rules? What don't you know? How can you find out the stuff you don't know? And how do you know when you're ready to solve? In your book, you sort of lay out uh, various chapters, and it, it looks like for each of these sort of rules, you've got a couple to three chapters that go with that uh, that rule. Is that kind of the way the book's configured? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And so under uh, what do you know? That seems to make sense. You sort of have to assess where you are when you start. Yep. And I, I'll hasten to add the the first thing I tell people is write down what you know. It it's it's fine to you know brainstorm and make lists, but you really need to write it down in a way that you can communicate it to other people. And so, is this the reason that when I was an undergrad that I thought that my profs were being cruel and uh, unreasonable when they made me start every problem by writing down at the top of the engineering pad, here are my assumptions, here are my variables, here's <laughs> my free body diagram? Yep. Well, you, if if you picked up on it when you were taking those classes, you were a lot smarter than I was. It took me <laughs> about 40 years to figure out <laughs> that – that you know, all those classes I took, you know, physics and uh, the very basic electronics and all these things, they were all doing the same thing. You know, they'd say, "Well, here's some variables and here's some relationships, and you just got to learn to plug it all together." And and they really were teaching the same method about mm-hmm. what do you know, what don't you know, the rules. Well, rules are just like equations or relationships. Uh, what don't you know? That's your variables, your unknowns. And then it's like, well, how am I going to find out the stuff I don't know? Well, in most of those classes, you just find it out by calculation. But sometimes you have to do estimation or you have to do research to figure out those answers you don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm just shuddering thinking about initial value problems. (laughs) (laughs) I'm shuddering thinking about work. (laughs) But I'm skipping ahead to how do you find out the stuff you don't know? (laughs) Wikipedia. Well, be- before we did jump into that, you talked earlier about the importance of uh, listening to the customer to find out what the problem is. I-, I take it you feel like communication is pretty important in the troubleshooting process? I sure do. And it, it shows because I have several chapters at the be- beginning of uh, this book that just talk about where better communication would have sped up that debug process. In a very strange way, I've often found that the most important the debugger needs to tell some fact is the debugger himself. You know, in other words, if I'm doing the debug, I need to tell myself some knowledge. And let me say that a different way. When you write down your understanding and your knowledge in really clear ways, you often immediately see where you've gone wrong. So, so sometimes there's nothing further to debug. You say, oh, there it is. I forgot to carry the one. I forgot to include vibration. I forgot about heat or I missed that requirement in the specification. And it's just the act of writing it down helps you. 
Now, sometimes communication gets a lot tougher, and we have lots of problems with the way people express ideas. Sometimes we have problems with English as a second language. You know, um, I, I like to tell this joke, you know, if you, if you speak two languages, we say you're bilingual. And if you speak three languages, you're trilingual. And if you only speak one language, you're American. <laughs> and uh, so because of that, everybody's forced to work, you know, in English with us. And that's um, sometimes that's unfortunate, but it's it's the way it is. Yeah. But it, it, it creates very interesting problems with idiom. Uh, so, somebody once said to me, we found an error in these two places. So we fixed the wrong ones. And I said, well, when are, when are you going to fix the right ones? And they said, why would we fix the right ones? We only need to fix the wrong ones. <laughs> and and it, it took a really long time before we were able to establish that they meant they fixed the units that contain the error, not literally the wrong ones, you know, which, uh, which, which we would have interpreted as they yeah. fixed the incorrect unit. But they just meant these units were wrong. They were bad. And we fixed them. Makes sense. <laughs> I was going to say, also keep in mind when, uh, you know, to anyone out there who's dealing with somebody with uh, English as a second language, speaking a second language is hard enough. As jargonistic as engineering can be, it's twice as tough. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and we throw in a lot of sports metaphors, too, and that, yeah. throws, that really throws them. <laughs> yes. Yeah, speaking of, uh, you know, talking out the problem and what's required, I, I saw you'd had an article on your um, – on your site there, Bob, about what customers don't understand. And you had a really nice quote in there that I, I took to heart was, uh, you know, everything is trivial for those who don't have to do the work. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that goes both ways, you know, whether at work you're talking to a customer, you know, you have to understand why their specs are important and they also have to understand why maybe they have to flex a little bit in certain areas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought that was a really good post. Yeah, I, I've suffered through that many, many, many times. And unfortunately, I think I've inflicted that same problem on other people. I think I'm just as guilty as you are. <laughs> yeah, so Bob, is there, uh, since communication is important, is there anything that uh, we as engineers can do to improve our ability to communicate clearly? Uh, yeah, actually, probably the best thing any engineer can do is make better use of these great tools that we have available. I mean, take a photo, take a short video, or record some audio. Draw a little block diagram that shows the inputs and outputs and how they connect together. Or, or use a software tool to organize and present your ideas. Um, it, I, I don't care if you use word processors or spreadsheets or some fancy mind map tool. It's just, um, you know, we've got these great tools to help us, and we need to do that. And if, if you're writing software... Write a little summary of what the code was supposed to do, where, <laughs> where it puts stuff in memory or registers or how it manages asynchronous and synchronous events. You know, just, just write it down something about it. And it's, it's just amazing how some of these really simple steps can make some problems so obvious. And in those cases where you have a really, really difficult problem, at least you've already gathered a lot of the information together. So when you dive into that really deep exploration, you've got that list to help you. Yeah. So I keep two lab notebooks. My, my first one is just kind of a scratch pad where I do Ohm's Law 
700 times because it's always different resistor values. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. the, the second one is, you know, kind of my, my Bible, if you will, where it's got tough derivations and really tricky experiment setups. So I, next time I have that problem, I don't have to reinvent the wheel. I can just flip through and see if I have to change anything or just reuse the same setup. Mm -hmm. And that's been really helpful. Documentation is definitely uh, a good habit to fall into. And then it can save you work too sometimes because I'll have customers ask, well, how did you test the spec? We want to make sure we're matching up, you know, using our board instead of yours and Sometimes if I'm feeling lazy and, you know, the customer doesn't have English as a second language, um, I can just photocopy that notebook page and send it off to them. Yeah. Yeah. The second of your five questions is uh, what are the rules? And so what what do you consider to be a rule that's applicable in this uh, instance? Oh, well, that's, that's really a great question. You know, obviously we cannot avoid – textbook equations like uh, E equals IR, F equals MA. As noted philosopher Homer Simpson once said, in this house, we obey the laws of thermodynamics. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but there are also rules that, that simply come from the customer. They say, this product must be so small or it cannot weigh more than this much. And if we ignore those constraints, the customer will not buy our product. You know, if, if he insists that it be painted black and we paint ours gray, he's going to go somewhere else. And so to me, the, the, there are four basic constraints on any project, and those are people, time, money, and results. I, I even have T-shirts that say that on the front, people, time, <laughs> money, results. <laughs> that sounds an awful lot like uh, the, uh, the triangle that we went through on our last episode about project management. Does it not, Adam? That sounds uh, really familiar. Yeah. What 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 was what were the uh, the ones we worked on? It was cost and time and scope, scope and quality. quality. Yeah. Something okay. something similar. Okay. So. Yep. Okay. So we've got uh, people, time, money, and results. And uh, um, how do how do you use that for troubleshooting? Well. <clears throat> It's not so much that you use that for troubleshooting, but you have to always be aware. There's going to be times when your boss comes in and he says, you don't have any more time. Or he's going to say, I'm sorry, we don't have the money for the tool you want to buy to solve that problem. Or um, if he's the boss, sometimes he's looking at the people he has and he says, well, yeah, I'd like to have someone else solving this problem. But these are the guys who work for me. And so he's got to deal with the people he has. And so um, all of those are limitations or constraints to, to what happens in the problem solving. Mm -hmm. And so how do you go about determining which of those constraints are you know, valid and which ones may be just political hurdles? You know, somebody sort of has a, a, a whim or a whimsy and decides, well, I want all the units to be – gray instead of black or black instead of gray? Wow. Um, the, the only answer I think I can give you is to say, if you're going to tell the customer he's wrong, you'd better have a lot of science to back you up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> it better not be an opinion. <laughs> yeah. For, for example, you know, if he tells you he wants an 800-watt product in the size of an iPod, well, maybe you can build a sample with nothing more than a resistor that demonstrates the minor heat problem he's created. 
you know, because right. this little bitty package is not going to get rid of 800 watts. But every every business is different. And remember, there's also legal constraints on a lot of projects. So protecting public safety, it's, that's more than a political hurdle. You know, I, I'm sure you know that story where NASA sent a probe that missed its Mars insertion orbit because a set of calculations used the wrong units. And, and millions of dollars were lost. But sometimes stories of engineering failure are much more serious. Uh, there, there isn't much that's funny in an air crash investigation or a building collapse. But I, I really encourage all engineers to read about air crash investigations because um, they, there's, sometimes there's some real amazing stories there about assumption and the limits of humans and the limits of the machines. Do you know, I, well, I know you know the works of Henry Petrosky because uh, you mentioned his uh, book in a previous podcast. Yes. Um, and, you know, he writes about, uh, well, he wrote a book called To Engineer is Human. And he's written many other books about engineering and design and design failure. And, and Dr. Petrosky said something very cool during a talk in Washington, D.C. It's, it's up on YouTube. And he was talking about the difference between science and engineering. He said that when a great success happens, like landing on the moon, the headline the next day will say it was a triumph of science. But when a disaster happens, such as a rocket blowing up, the headline will say it was an engineering failure. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so once one has uh, determined what you know and one has determined what the rules are as defined by the, uh, the, uh, the constraints of uh, physics and the constraints of the customer's demands and wants – you have the, the third step of your five questions is what don't you know? Yeah. <laughs> and boy, does that one lead to arguments when I, uh, when I talk about that or discuss that with people. <laughs> is this another case of the unknown unknowns? That's amazing. Uh, that's exactly what I was just about to say. Oh, okay. You know, Donald Rumsfeld famously talked about that in a press conference. I was literally about to say that. I can't. <laughs> I can't hear that statement anymore without thinking about that press conference. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, so maybe lots of experience helps, and maybe sometimes that experience gives you that you know that tingling sensation in the back of your neck where you say, um, "There's something we're missing here." And you know that there's something unknown, but um, sometimes it's it is very clear to you. You know, you'll say, "Well, I know the signal goes into this block, but I don't know what's happening inside of there. We need to know more about that." Or you say, "I know it's getting this product's getting too hot, but I don't really know why." Mm -hmm. And so it's okay to just write down, "We don't know why it's getting hot." You know, and, and so you're just kind of trying to focus your attention and say, what are we what is it we're missing here? What do we not know that that some amount of study is going to find out? Because you don't want to waste all your time chasing things either that, you know, or that you don't suspect have anything to do with what you're trying to solve. As one would think by your the uh, the book title story about the dog barking when when the gentleman started that, he thought that was uh, extraneous information yes and so is there any way to get a feel for this how you know you're not going to look up in a textbook that says uh what you don't know is the uh is the heat factor well i guess i i'm a big fan of of reading other people's designs just like we read books or watch movies or something you know i i think that good debuggers are really good readers of design 
they they study other people's output you know what what is somebody else's product or their design and they try to figure out what problem the other designer was trying to solve now sometimes it's that's very much a puzzle and you really can't tell but I, I certainly I just think that studying other designs gives us the equivalent of their years of experience without some of the pain. Well, as you say this, it uh, pops into my head. Did you read uh, the Zoo Circuit by Jim Williams? No. Oh, it's a it's a great uh, case study in design. Um, he goes through a uh, voltage to frequency converter or frequency to voltage, one or the other, and he had to meet some specs that he thought were you know, just impossible to meet. And he, he walks you through the design, uh, the design process perfectly. It popped into my head as you were saying this. Okay. I'll, I'll put a link there. So we have it for the show notes. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really good. And it's just, you know, how he's walking through, he's designing, he's designing, he's got all these variables running through his head. And then, you know, something like going to the zoo and seeing monkeys, uh, ends up being what he needs to solve his problem. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. <laughs> it, it goes really well with troubleshooting, you know, just, you know, sometimes there's a, a bit of luck to it and a lot of randomness and working on a problem for a while and grinding it down. So you're recommending going to the zoo to solve your uh, debug problems? In this particular case, yeah. <laughs> um, that, that's what he's christened the circuit. And then uh, Jim Williams wrote, I don't know, probably more pages than I, I care to remember. And he's, he's called it the zoo circuit quite a few times. So let me ask you a question. Sure. How many how many times have each of you solved a problem in the shower in the morning? In other words, you you worked for a week or two weeks or three weeks before and you couldn't find the problem and then you were off doing something really mundane, you know, taking a shower or shaving or something and all of a sudden you knew the answer. It just came to you. If I could have written my thesis in the shower, I would have gotten it done in half the time. Uh, okay. <laughs> all the time. At almost every major breakthrough, uh, I was taking a shower or something like that. And why do you think that was? Um, you know, I really am not sure. I, I, I have the same way. I solve all my problems, maybe not in the shower, but just by stepping away from whatever it was I'm working on. That's why I always like to have at least two things going on at work. So if something just bothers me, I can say, forget this, throw my hands up in the air and go do something else. And then, you know, whether it's after lunch or the next day or two days later, you know, I'll come, come look at the problem again. And I'm like, oh, well, this is clearly wrong. And, you know, fix my thing and go about my business. Um, having time to step away from the problem really helps me. Yeah. I hit a horrific one recently where uh, completely ruined a night of sleep. And it wasn't until the next day when I was telling, I was explaining to somebody why, it was impossible that I figured out how to do it. It was the act of <laughs> explaining why it could not be done. Out. Oh, it's so much better to have someone to bounce those ideas off of. <laughs> yes. Yes. But yeah. I think it was the only moment that I actually stopped thinking about solving the problem. <laughs> yeah. I, I run into that with my boss sometimes. He's like, you know, you know the theory, but you just got to stop and think about it. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't understand. Like, as soon as you say like one word, when I come to bounce something off you, like I just, my mind, everything snaps into place all at once. And then I get it. So Bob, have you come across any kind of, you know, neurological explanation as to why this is the case? Why we seem to come up with solutions when we're not thinking directly about the problem? Yeah. Well, I, I believe that, um, I've read, 
and now you're going to ask me where I've read it, and I'm not sure I can tell you, that it's actually very, very common for people to solve problems in the shower. And it's because their their mind is very much running over the thing, but yet it's it's sort of more back of the mind. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not so focused on it. Um, they they can kind of bring in all, you know, left brain, right brain, all that stuff and uh, and and come up with an answer. It also kind of uh, externalizes thinking in a way that if you really think about it, it makes me uncomfortable where it's almost like you are thinking, but you also have this external object, which is your brain, which is doing some sort of background consolidation when you finally stop using it, mm-hmm. stop, you know, when you stop actively thinking. I can't tell you the number of times I've thought I've finished taking some measurements or, you know, running a couple tests and putting together the report and I'm, I'm in the middle of sending the email and I'm just about to hit send and I go, ah, I forgot to make this assumption. All of this is wrong. I have to go right back to the bench and throw out half of what I did. <laughs> oh, I've sent those emails and then immediately yeah. had to follow it up with. Discard all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, guys. There's a typo in my spreadsheet. Uh, all the math is wrong. <laughs> so, Carmen, you you're talking there about taking measurements, and I think that applies to the uh, the next question that's part of uh, Bob's five question method, and that is how can you find out the stuff that you don't know? I say, don't be afraid to steal things if you have to take some measurements. <laughs> yeah, I know there was a joking reference earlier to uh, Wikipedia, and. Uh, I, I did do a blog post recently on something called the crap test, and it's uh, it's it's a very cute little thing that librarians came up with for uh, assessing, you know, the the quality of the data that you're getting from the internet because today so many people get so much stuff from the web, and uh, it's it's not always the source of all knowledge, and it can be really really dangerous, especially I think for engineers. Mm-hmm. I often turn to Wikipedia early on if I'm just trying to get a brief overview of a subject with which I've, you know, a term that I'm, I'm not familiar. But certainly I don't rely on the equations or explanations I find there if I'm doing any serious engineering work. Yeah, that's, that's a very smart way to go at it. So when, when you run into this problem where you realize there's some things you don't know and you want to find, find that stuff out, when does it make sense to sit down yourself and start deriving, you know, equations from first principles and really immersing yourself into it? When does it make sense to just go ask somebody else? Well, personally, I believe when you're first coming up to speed on a project or a problem, it really does make sense to go ask an expert if you can. That mm-hmm. assumes there's one there for you to ask uh, lots of questions. And I think it's that's a very reasonable and fair thing to do. And and then you go off and you study some and you come back with fewer questions and hopefully some useful thoughts, you know, about the exploration. Where where do you go next? Uh, you shouldn't abuse that guy's time, that expert. Um, but you try to figure out when he's reached his limit. <laughs> and that's hard. That is very hard for engineers. We, we tend not to pick up on social cues very well. And so sometimes I... I find it better to ask, you know, if I have to go ask an expert, I'll ask him to set some limits and, and say, you tell me when I have to walk away. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, it never hurts to go back to the, you know, first principles, but you can't really expect to duplicate hundreds of years of learning in a few minutes. I, I, I know I'm just not that smart. I can't do it that way. Right. And, and so, you know, we tend to, 
heuristically, you know, there are rules of thumb that we rely on sometimes. I mean, if you're if you're looking for a uh, an, a problem with your auto engine, you know, my my father's was always, you know, you need three things: you need uh, you need gas, you need air, and you need spark. And so you you know you started from that to store sort out what things you know might be missing, and therefore you could start looking for what don't you know about those those issues. But that's a little different than than digging all the way down to first principles. Is there is there any kind of guidance you can have about how heavily to rely on rules of thumb and how how much you want to actually dig back down into uh, you know more complex models? I'm sorry. The the only way I can answer that is to say I think every single engineer is different, and you you bring to your own problem solving your your own experience and your own kind of set of those rules, like you said, spark, gas, air, uh, you're, you're bringing that to that situation. And how much of each thing you rely on, whether it's an expert or, um, or that, you know, instinct, or is it doing lots and lots of experiments? I, I know some engineers instinctively run to the lab and start you know, they sprint to the lab and they, you know, they they start testing immediately before they ever even try to think about, well, what am I testing for? But they have that confidence that, you know, their scope or their measurement instruments, whatever it is, it's going to tell them the answer. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm hesitant to try to tell people, oh, this is the way you have to do it. I, I think everybody brings their own balance to that. Interesting. Yeah, I, I see pros and cons of both. I mean, you can easily get lost in equations. Um, you know, it's always best, at least that I found, you know, like you said, everybody's different. Um, always simplify when you're working with equations. Take, you know, cut out as many variables as you can. You know, assume for the moment that this transistor is ideal. And if you think the problem's with the inductor, model the crap out of the inductor. Only when that falls apart do you start adding in other variables to your problem. And at the same time, you know, you could you could spend half a day screwing around with equations, but if you don't exactly know what you're looking for and you just go play around in the lab, a lot of times you'll see something that catches your eye and you go, that doesn't look quite right, and then that'll lead you down, you know, the path to fixing your problem. Yep. It, it, certain problems are attacked better from different ways. Mm-hmm. Also, going to first principles sometimes can oversimplify your problem, where, you know, lots of devices that we work on are, <clears throat> lots of interesting devices that we work on are systems and it's difficult to get to first principles oftentimes when you have interacting components that uh, are easily modeled yes and and sometimes I think I give an example of this in the uh, in the book where sometimes the problem isn't any one component it's the interface between. Yep. Two components. It's the assumptions we made about, oh, well, I assumed you were outputting this, and no, I assumed you were inputting this, and it, it just didn't agree. Yeah, this circuit was perfectly noise immune when I put it, you know, when we used it in the other product, and then when I put it in this product, which just happens to have half as much decoupling on it, I have problems. Yeah. Well, now, one of the ways that you mentioned in the book that I thought was interesting for finding out what you don't know had nothing to do with written analysis and numerical computation, it had to do with an engineer's own senses, uh, the senses of uh, hearing and smelling and tasting. Yeah. Well, yeah, don't don't forget touch and seeing, you know, maybe those are too obvious. Uh, 
You know, if, if you read stories online, like a, a Design News magazine, they have a title called uh, Sherlock Holmes, or EDN, <laughs> yeah, EDN Magazine has Tales from the Cube. That's my and you'll favorite find, part of EDN Magazine. <laughs> yeah. You know, you find these countless stories where an engineer has rediscovered that all silicon junctions can be photoelectric devices. Yes. You know, <laughs> or, or they, they rediscover that copying machines generate huge amounts of electrical noise. And... Um, you know, and so lots of debug stories involve this element of, quote, I suddenly realized that I had seen something flash at the same time the problem happened, unquote. You know, it's it's that uh, and you can substitute. Oh, I, I heard some noise or I felt something odd or I smelled something burning just before or after the problem, you know, and and it's it's that sensation, you know, and you're, you're trying to uh, both quantify and identify you know, uh, Bob Pease has a great quote where he talks about if something seems funny, record amount of funny. <laughs> <laughs> and and I apologize. He attributes it to a coworker, and I can't remember the the coworker's name. I think he, I think he also said, um, you know, if something happens once, it's a fluke. If it happens twice, it's a problem. <laughs> okay, <laughs> <laughs> something along those lines, and that that stuck with me. Yeah. Well, so, it, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I was going to say I've I've certainly been in situations where hearing has been important. If, if been working with the pneumatic circuit or something, you could hear the the air exhausting, and you know whether the port's opening up or not, or you know how an engine is behaving. You can listen to that and understand that. And I can see smelling on a on occasions if if there's a a you know something's running too hot, you start to you start to smell the insulation burning. And that kind of thing. I'm really curious about tasting. What is it? What 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 kind of debug situation has required tasting? Well, so in in an engineer's guide to solving problems, I tell a very short story where my wife was at a car repair shop, and the owner of the shop stopped by, and he he told her that he recognized a problem with the transmission because the transmission fluid tasted funny. And she got this look <laughs> and she got this look on her face and he obviously recognized what she was thinking and he said, "Hey, I don't drink it. I just put a little on my tongue and then spit it out." So, you know, uh, I, I I'm really glad that as an electrical engineer, we generally try to keep the gear out of our mouths, but you know, obviously this is where we put the caution in if you're going to lick your circuit board, turn the power off. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So anyway, I, I that was a, a very short story that I kept with me for a long time because we were so surprised. Maybe I'm not getting enough tantalum. <laughs> <laughs> that brings up another important point. It's only stupid if it doesn't work. <laughs> yes. And it kills you. That you've, too. You've been watching too many football game commercials. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think I read that on the internet somewhere, but we'll attribute it to football commercials. All right. You know, the Super Bowl's coming up. Right. Can we say Super Bowl? Or are we going to get sued? Do we have to call it the big game? The big uh, game. The big game. Yes. The big game. Uh, yes. Colbert's calling it the superb owl. Nice. <laughs> Bob, in, in uh, part of your book, you talk about taking measurements while you're in the process of trying to find out stuff that you don't know. So how important do you think it is to – you know, to be concerned about taking measurements that are statistically valid. I mean, you can go in, you can get on the bench and you can say, okay, 
here I've measured the voltage across in a couple situations and it looks like it's around, you know, six and a half volts. So I'm happy with it. Or you can go in there and do a, you know, a formal study where you, you know, you, you take 20 samples and you figure out the, the uh, standard deviation and the mean. And so where's the trade-off in there and, and how, detailed does your sampling pattern have to be to to continue on with the troubleshooting process well um uh, that's interesting it during design we we certainly try to do a lot of things like you know monte carlo simulations where you're trying to say well if the tolerances of all these parts add up or stack up in a certain way um you know will we have a tolerance problem but to me, that's more of during design. Now, during debug, I probably wouldn't have used as sophisticated of terms as, as your, the wording you're using here. I would have just said, well, somewhere along the way, you need to know how many of your samples are showing the problem. I mean, sometimes it might be measured really crudely, like they're all crap. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, and it's very different to have one in 100 units failing or 10 in 100 as compared to one in 10,000. Uh, economically, logically, and from a quality system point of view, you, you need to have those numbers because it's not all that easy to generalize what it means, but those numbers always tell you uh, something different about the problem depending on your skill area. You know, in, in a digital design, one out of 10,000 failing might tell you one kind of thing about the design. Uh, in an analog circuit, you might have a much higher failure rate, but it's telling you something different about the problem. And so, so I, I just think that the number of units failing is often a really good clue to the kind of problem you're chasing. But, but it is, it isn't the same for all skills and all engineers. Yeah, I've certainly run into problems where someone will come back with a measurement or there'll be, you know, I may be doing the measurement, but especially if it's a complex, uh, program, you know, measuring measuring a voltage is not a good example because that's done so quickly and that's so easily replicated. Uh, but if you have, <laughs> I can tell you some stories where that is not true. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, I, I've certainly been there where you know you'd you'd run a machine through a, a a sequence and you wanted to see how it was doing and and sometimes it would do well and sometimes it wouldn't do well and it was like you were just grasping at straws uh, and sometimes it was I found that we had to back off to the point where we we're serious about, you know, every little detail. We tried to measure it as accurately as we could and verify what we had going in because the the possible, you know, as he's tried to you know, troubleshoot through the, uh, you know, like a little uh, pyramid, a little tree, you know, through all the branches that this thing could be, it was really critical what the various measurements were as to which branch you headed down. And uh, so it was it was really important to to spend the time to to make sure that our instrumentation was right and that our measurements were correct. Yes, and maybe I misinterpreted your question at first there because um I was talking about the statistics of the failure rate. Okay. And um and and you're talking about the statistics of measurements that you make and the statistics of the information that you're collecting. Yeah. And, and it's just as important. You're, you're absolutely right. And I'm sorry, because I think I maybe went down a, the wrong path with my answer. I think both are very important topics to talk about. Okay. Yeah, I, 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 I don't have anything <laughs> uh, So it was an important uh, side, a good sidetrack to take or, or path to go down. So whether you're uh, 
talking about the the failure rate or you're talking about measurements, both important information is you're trying to determine what you don't know. Mm-hmm. There's a, a common mantra that we use in troubleshooting called uh, divide and conquer. How is that best used? Ah, uh, okay. So I I like to call that uh, debug by division. But but okay. of course there are there are lots <laughs> lots of names, and the idea is really it's really simple, really basic. But for some reason, it gets skipped over by a lot of educators. And it's it's nothing more than recursively dividing your system into pieces and figuring out if it's a problem before or after this arbitrary dividing point. And so if the problem exists before a certain point, you work your way backwards through the system, again, dividing and checking. And if the problem appears after that point, you work forwards through the system until you can localize it down to a, a pretty specific point, usually like one block or one stage. Mm-hmm. It's the binary search. It is, yes. For for a software guy, it's absolutely a binary search. Um, and so I, I'm kind of curious about something where maybe this is more specific, this type, that particular type of debug to electrical, computer, and mechanical engineers. So, Adam. Do, do civil engineers have a process like this? I mean, can you share an example of how you would put this idea in civil engineering? Well, part of the uh, difficulty with characterizing these sorts of problem-solving techniques in civil engineering is we generally aren't trying to fix something in the field because if it gets to that point, uh, we're in big trouble. Uh, mm-hmm. If the bridge is falling down, uh, th- that's not an easy fix. You know, we don't, we don't, uh, <laughs> you don't debug a bridge in, in the process usually. You don't have one of those time stopping watches where you could investigate things? Yeah. Um, the, <laughs> <laughs> the compile time on bridges is really long. Yes, it, it is. Um, so it, it's not, uh, the sort of thing where you can pull samples out of production and, and check them. Um, in, in all cases. I mean, some things like with with sampling of product coming to the site, like concrete or asphalt, there's some things you can – I guess you could use that divide-and-conquer approach. And, well, these trucks are having problems with temperature. What's the difference? Um, unfortunately, a lot of our, our systems, and especially the stuff I work with, it's rather difficult to kind of divide – or it's already divided, or it's I guess very apparent where that problem may be. Can you can you test as you build in civil engineering? Like, say you're building a bridge and you get, you know, a quarter or a half the way done. Is there any way to hang like test loads off of it to make sure everything is kind of bolted together right and it's not going to collapse? You know, once the cars and trucks go on. Uh, there are. It's not necessarily like a a testing of. Uh, a simulation of the the final characteristics, but there's mm-hmm. a material quality testing and sampling. So we'll take um, we'll go randomly out to the site and grab a a, a couple of rebar, and we'll p- break those before they the final deck gets poured over top of it. And mm-hmm. we're we're testing the the concrete as we go to make sure that everything looks like it's going to perform how it should. Okay. And then it, it, it's usually more of a material problem than it is a design problem. Gotcha. And partly because because of the cost involved with going back and fixing a problem, we tend to use very over-designed systems, and we mm-hmm. use systems that we've designed many, many times before. So we have a lot of confidence. We have a lot of confidence in how to design a concrete beam. Gotcha. 
She had a funny image of like building half a bridge and hanging a test load off of it, and it collapses, and you've got to start all over. <laughs> Measuring deflection, yeah. The deflection was infinite. Yeah. <laughs> but you're also involved in traffic management systems, are you not? Yes. I mean, I imagine you have similar problem solving. You, know, you try something, get the stop, the little lights that they put on on ramps, or you know, scheduling of lights on a highway. You know. I imagine there's some tweaking and debugging there. Yeah, I guess that would be uh, the – I don't get involved in the actual debug of a lot of those systems. Um, but, uh, yeah, a, a lot of those are electrical systems we're debugging, so it's much like everything else we've talked about. Well, I was actually thinking the traffic itself. Yeah. Um, things bind up at this point of the day, and they shouldn't. How can we improve things? Um, yeah, we can – look at things and try to break them down into, okay, this intersection is the problem. So let's look at what's coming in, what's going out of this intersection and then tweak parameters a little bit here and there. Um, you know, very, very similar to how you would do it in an electrical system. Mm-hmm. I think this is what they were doing out in New Jersey. I think they were using the divide and conquer <laughs> method to, to uh, test how well traffic got over the bridge. Hey, you know what? When they closed those lanes, it didn't. Was that the null hypothesis? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there are certain very well-formed rules. You need certain number of lanes. <laughs> but uh, that's a, diff- a very different issue. Back to that political uh Political obstacle? Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> plus, in, plus in traffic management, your time constants suck. You know, I can change the resistor and know in 20 microseconds if it worked or not. You uh, you change some light timings. You may have to wait a month before you figure out if it works. Well, and, and <laughs> it may have been a problem the day that we were out there, but it isn't the other 364 days of the year. Yeah. Uh, things are just so variable, which – so you, you do you do different statistical sampling and just look at everything with that statistical caveat. You know, I can't go out there and count the cars and say, okay, this is how many cars there are. When if I were doing something with an electrical circuit, I can plug my voltmeter on there and, you know, I know what the voltage is. It's not mm-hmm. going to go up 10% at any given point in time in the exact same yeah. conditions. Again, Carmen, Adam's implying that a voltage is easy to take. You're indicating that's not the truth? <laughs> no, and this this kind of goes back to one of the points I kind of half made before. You know, when you're troubleshooting, it's you can never have too many pieces of equipment. Beg, borrow, and steal, whatever you need. Um, <laughs> I've got quite a few tests. I wish I could go into more detail about it, but unfortunately it's an ongoing project. But right. um, it's a very Rube Goldberg-esque uh, test setup where – in order to test a very specific thing that isn't matching up to what the guys in the automatic testers are seeing, um, you know, you got to coax the circuit into uh, a certain certain state, and that requires, you know, raising this voltage, overdriving this pin, and you know, spinning around exactly three times, and all, all sorts of fun stuff. And I'm, I'm stealing stuff off people's bench constantly to run it. I hate running it because everyone hates giving me their stuff, but they understand <laughs> it has to be done, right? <laughs> And the number one rule of measurement is my my measurement tools are trying to lie to me. How? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> we're trying to measure another thing we're doing is a lot of chips, you know, battery life is important. So a lot of chips have a low power state and, you know, you're, you're dissipating 20 milliwatts or 50 milliwatts, 100 milliwatts, no more, no less, you know, depending on the system. And 
You know, when it, when a milliamp of current makes a difference, you're you're just spinning your head trying to figure out where the leakage is coming from. Yeah. Yeah. Clean your damn circuit boards. Yes. It makes a difference. You know, all the flux and crap builds up and, you know, it, it forms really crude resistors. And if it's dirty enough, you will pull more current. Huh. Yeah. It's not a fun problem to debug, but it's... <laughs> but somebody has to do it, and it's your job. Exactly. That or my high-speed lines always work whenever I hook the scope up. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I can't see my noise when I hook the ground. No. Sorry, no. The worst one is I see the noise when I disconnect my uh, my reference line. Mm-hmm. That's, that's always fun. Yeah. A lot of times we're trying to measure, you know, very, like, overshoot and ringing and rise times on... Uh, you know the the phase note of a buck regulator, which is pretty pretty high power as far as you know general electronics go. Um, and tight grounding is absolutely essential. And sometimes circuit board layouts, especially if you're debugging a customer's board and it's a motherboard in a new tablet or something, it, it's there's not a lot of room to hook a probe up. And trying to find a good spot to get a quality measurement is a nightmare. It takes easily two or three times as long to set up a measurement as it does to take a measurement. The method of that you call debug by division, Bob, I, uh, one of the things that I was curious about is that you said that professors are wanting to use this textbook as a, uh, as a guide for their students. And I find that when I work with students in the lab, this is one of the most difficult things for them to understand. They, they can point to something and they go, this doesn't work. But when I start sort of probing, you know, have you checked your inputs? Have you checked your outputs? Have you checked something in the middle? They seem pretty clueless as to how to go about this. And I know that people learn through experience and on-the-job training, that kind of thing. Do you have any advice for how young engineers might learn how to properly apply this debug-by-division method? Oh, wow. Uh, I learned it just by watching someone else do it. You know, I mean, literally looking over his shoulder as he pulled out a about a four foot or five foot long schematic that that was incredibly long. And, and I was totally lost reading it. But he, you know, he said, well, you know, we're getting out here and we don't we don't know what's there. We you know, we can see the inputs way over here on the left side. They're good. So it's somewhere in between. And then he would just start, you know, working his way through that. Right. And so. Just sometimes just watching one example, I think, is enough for people to kind of get the idea. We've had very similar experiences. Yeah. Yeah, on, on an internship, and for all the listeners who have been following since I joined the show, you've probably heard the story like six times. But uh, <laughs> I, was, I was working at GE, and the one designer there was, you know, I, I was kind of his tech on my co-op, which I'm not complaining about. I learned so much. And, yeah, I was just looking over his shoulders. He was debugging the circuits he designed. And, and seeing what he did, you know, he'd always have me solder on the power circuits first to make sure we had stable voltage rails and we could always count on those, or so we think, uh, before we move on and, you know, how to break everything up. Yeah, you know, doctors have a thing where they say, uh, I mean, medical doctors have a thing where they talk about uh, uh, see one, do one, teach one. It's <laughs> <laughs> a, good, uh, a good, good strategy to have. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, watching watching this guy work was was awesome. But you know, at some point, you just got to dive in and start doing it yourself. Yeah, because you can you can hear check the inputs, you know, 
10, 10 hundred times until it, until it's you're blue in the face, but you know, until you're actually debugging a circuit and you forget to check the inputs and it bites you in the butt. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's not going to really sink in. So Bob, the uh, final question in your five questions method is, uh, how do you know when you're ready to solve? How do you know when you're ready to solve? <laughs> That's a good one. And, um, in an engineer's guide to solving problems, I, I do give you some uh, some warnings and some challenge questions to help you decide if you've reached a valid solution. So uh, under the warnings, you know, I've got things like correlation is not causation. And then the second thing right after that is your theory of causation had better show good correlation. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of, it's a little contradictory, but you always have to keep that in mind that just because, well, you know, it seems like every time I close this door, the light goes on. Maybe they are related, but maybe they're not. And so if if you come to the conclusion that they are related, you'd better have really good correlation. It ought to be 100 percent. But if you know, you have to watch out for voodoo there. Um, I talk about uh, there might be more than one correct answer. That's, that's a very hard thing. When you're coming out of uh, school, uh, new graduates really struggle with this idea of, well, there, there's not just one answer. There's a million answers. There's 10 million answers, and we're just looking for the one that's the best. Certainly, uh, sometimes in a debug, when you've got a, a big problem, you need to undo your fix and check and see if the problem comes back. Mm-hmm. Because if the problem doesn't come back when you take your fix away, then you probably didn't fix it. Right. It just was intermittent and just kind of disappeared for a while. Yeah. Um, and then related to this more than one correct answer, there may be multiple paths to a good solution. And your way is not the only way. And equally, your boss's way is not the only way. <laughs> but but politically, you maybe need to listen to him when he tells you, here's how I want you to solve this. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, when your boss makes a suggestion, have you tr- have you checked this? That's your next step. <laughs> yes, that's a very good idea. And then the, the last one in the, the warnings is I say, never allow a defect or a problem report to go by without documenting and, and hopefully fixing that problem. Um, somebody once said it to me, you know, if you see it during development, you will see it during production. And, and it will be at the worst possible time in the worst possible way. So, you know, it, it's a good idea to just don't ever ignore a, a problem that's actually visible. If you can tell it's there, go fix it. Then I, then I have my challenge questions. And I talk about, you know, well, how, how did other people solve problems like this in the past? Which leads right into that whole thing about good writers of design or good readers of other people's designs. And you need to figure out, you know, are, are you being a good reader? Are you actually paying attention to? I'm not saying you have to copy what other people do. I, I think that comes across sometimes in a bad way. Um, I, I'm saying you need to understand what other people have done. Right. And, and then the, there's this next uh, challenge question about could your design have ever worked the way you, you're saying it works? Could it have ever worked that way? I mean, I've seen lots of designs where, you know, people just had something that couldn't possibly have worked. And that yet 
you know, they put it on the bench and it works. And I guess my classic example of that is you, you have a very, very high frequency circuit and maybe there's a, a coupling capacitor missing, but it turns out the pads on the PCB have, you know, two picofarads of coupling capacitance and it's perfectly happy to put a couple of gigahertz of, you know, radio waves across that, the pads on the PCB. Mm-hmm. And so actually it shouldn't have worked that way. And, you know, so the next question is, does it work that way now, the way you think it works? And, you know, you have to answer that, you have to challenge your assumptions. Right. And then there's another one about, are you suffering from optimism bias? Boy, engineers are human. And (laughs) there's times we really, really want it to work. And so sometimes we'll actually look at something that's not working and it's obviously not working. Mm -hmm. And we'll say, oh, it's working fine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah we want so badly for it to for the problem to be solved and to go away yes yeah and then my last two i try to run through these quick it's just you know how complete are your checklists I, i'm a big fan of doing checklists when no matter what you're doing and you know you you set these up in advance and you say well this this is how we're going to know we we got to the end and we're right and you do it by having a checklist and then you look at it and you say well, gee, I, I proposed 20 tests and I did three. Hmm. Maybe maybe you don't have so much confidence as you thought. Right. Then um, the last one is a really strange question. I say, are you doing big debug or little debug? And and to me, the difference in those is how many people are involved and especially how many people do you have to communicate with? And to me, big debug is when you've got a lot of people on copy on those emails and you're, the, the requirement for clear documentation is just so much more in big debug because you've got so many people listening. And then in little debug, yeah, maybe it's just you. Maybe it's you and one other guy. Right. You can be much, uh, much more loose about your documentation at that point. That's it. Right. And I've, I've certainly seen where as, as the group gets bigger, the time you have to spend on communication gets uh, much more important because otherwise it becomes like uh, the game of telephone where somebody whispers something to the next person. It goes around. And, and uh, if you get a really big group and especially if problems are going on in the project, some really strange rumors can start circulating and, and you end up dealing with a lot more political problems than just technical problems. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I've taken, especially as you know, we start doing bigger and bigger chips at work. Um, you know, you know, like, like we said, documentation becomes very important. I even started documenting my documentation. Uh, <laughs> not, not a lot, but enough, you know, cause I can't always assume I'm going to be there to explain, you know, what was going on when I was taking some measurements or what I was thinking when I set up this experiment. So, you know, on like every scope capture, I'll throw up, uh, the software we have to take scope captures, you can add notes right to the image. So you can save it with that image. It'll always have those notes. So I know if someone's looking at it, you know, they'll always know what my input voltage was, what, you know, inductor size I was using, what, you know, my train of thought was in taking this scope shot. And it's helpful for me too, you know, when six months down the line, a customer has a problem and like, oh, I think I documented that. I can quickly go through what I have and see if I actually did or not. Another another little tidbit I've picked up. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think that communication is really important. Yeah. So we've once again run well past the hour mark, so we should probably think about wrapping this episode up. 
So, Bob, are there any changes that you'd like to see made in the uh, engineering curriculum that might help young engineers with their troubleshooting skills? Oh, boy. Um, Well, actually, I think one of the biggest changes that I would recommend is already underway at a lot of schools. I've been reading that many, many schools are moving to project-based classes, and they just throw freshman and sophomore engineering students into some kind of a challenge, maybe an arbitrary problem. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and those students have to work as a team, and they have to go through all the same issues that a project in industry will face. They're forced to debug stuff. Um, at the same time, I really think that engineering schools need to emphasize that debug or troubleshooting or fixing, whatever you want to call it, is an inherent part of design. You know, if, if debugging is the process of removing errors from a project, then designing must be the process of putting errors into the project. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going to make a lot of mistakes, you know, and the trick to success is to find and fix those mistakes quickly. Yeah. Yes. You know, I was thinking about this question, too, when I was preparing for the show. And, you know, a lot of a lot of it matches up with what you said, you know, more hands on classes, uh, keep pushing the co-ops like some schools are doing. And then uh, just what I think would be a cool idea and what I would definitely like to, you know, if I was a student, go attend was, um, you know, maybe, you know, it's really hard to fit new classes in, but even just uh, some seminars or a lecture series, you know, invite engineers in from the field and have them discuss a, a very complicated problem or something interesting that, you know, they saw and how they work through the problem. And then you get to see, you know, the little bits of theory, like, you know, if I'm not focusing in E&M, I don't understand how it's important. But, you know, when you're trying to measure a signal with a six-inch ground lead and all this noise is showing up, you know, that <laughs> it helps kind of tie home what you're learning in class. And, you know, if you do it for an hour or once a week or something, it's not a lot of time commitment and could give some benefit to it. Just my two cents. <laughs> So, Bob, you have a uh, entertaining book here. I enjoyed I enjoyed reading through it and learned a few things. And uh, we were only able to cover a, a small portion of the book in the uh, this evening's conversation. Uh, but I do appreciate your willingness to come on and and uh, share your knowledge with us this evening. Well, thank you. I re- I really enjoyed this, and I appreciate that that you were willing to to bring me in to talk. Yeah. Well, since we only got through half the book, maybe there's a part two in the works. <laughs> <laughs> We, we can do that when the second edition is ready. There we go. Part of his book tour. Let, let me share um, one one set of end thoughts uh, from my side. There's one thing I've been thinking a lot, uh, thinking about a lot since writing this book, um, and it's a very fair criticism that I only write from my own experience and the experience of those people that I've worked with over the years. And uh, I've always worked in an environment where products are generally mass produced and, you know, we have the opportunity to build and test them one by one. Uh, and in fact, we can stress test huge numbers of samples and then just throw them away because they're small and, and they're different. But, you know, engineers uh, like Adam, you know, in the civil engineering field, you can't build that full scale skyscraper or bridge or whatever and then push it with an earthquake to see how well it holds up. <laughs> You have to use scale models, and uh, and that's that's really why I wanted to ask that question: is you know, does any of this apply? And I think he he said in a very real way, no. And so, um, you know, it it is different, and different engineers do different things. And so, I, I apologize to those engineers, and I tell them, you know, yes, your business is a little different, but I still hope 
that you write stuff down, meaning you show your work, and I hope you pay attention to what you know, what you don't know, and to the rules and constraints. Uh, but it's true, your special rules for knowing when you're done solving a problem will be very different from mine. Yeah, I've just reemphasized that even though we can't, I can't take a bridge and test it, the, these rules or these, uh, steps, these questions do still apply. You need to know what you know, what, what rules you have to follow. And, and so the process is good. Just some of the ways to approach things have to be a little different. Yeah. And I, I can even see that at work too. You know, I do, I see applications work and, if I smoke an eval board or I blow up one of our parts, like no big deal. We have a whole wafer's worth of parts at our disposal, and our eval boards are generally not as complex as the end application. So it's maybe a hundred bucks down the drain, give or take. Not the end of the world. I can't do it on a daily basis, but yeah, if a customer smokes a motherboard, um, that's a lot of extra parts. It's a very complicated board. It's it's way more money that they're throwing down the the drain. So they have to be. A, very targeted in their troubleshooting, whereas I can take more of a shotgun approach. So there is no one answer. We're all different. How come we always wind up in our ambiguity episode? (laughs) (laughs) Just once I'd like to say, and that's the end of it. (laughs) So uh, Bob, if somebody wants to uh, get a hold of you or learn more about your book or learn more about uh, or read your blog, where might they uh, go to get a hold of you? So uh, on the web at www.prettygoodproblemsolver.com. It's all all written together, no spaces or dashes or anything like that. It's just okay. pretty good problem solver, and uh, it's it's where I try to encourage people to become pretty good problem solvers, and that's that's the intent of the title there. Fantastic. And and when does the second edition come out? It should be uh, available on Amazon and then shortly thereafter through uh, classic uh, book sales distribution in about two weeks. Well, fantastic. So that our, our episode will come out uh, at the beginning of February. So just uh, that'll be about a week after that. Yeah, but it, it's it's not exactly, you know, it's not a microsecond precise schedule. So <laughs> right. let, let's say middle of February. How's that? Okay. That sounds that sounds terrific. Well, Bob, thank you so very much for coming on this evening and uh, joining us on the podcast, and we certainly appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Right, thanks for coming on, Bob. Good to talk to you, Bob. Thank you. The Engineering Commons is produced by Analog Life, LLC, and Engineering Revision. Theme music by Paul Stevenson. For more info, visit the Engineering Commons dot com.